In the last episode, we discussed the politically charged issue of standardized testing and the test blind and test optional movements. Though we have primarily focused on college transition in this podcast, we now turn our attention to private high school applications and specifically boarding schools, which share some similarities with college application, but also offer some important distinctions. I'm joined today by boarding school admissions experts, Michael Corbell and Alex Inchay, the co-founders of Karn Educational Consulting. Michael holds a Master's of Education and Learning and Teaching from Harvard University and a Bachelor of Arts in Government and Legal Studies from Bowdoin College. For over a decade, Michael has worked in independent boarding and day schools as a teacher, advisor, hockey coach, and in admissions. Most recently, he was Director of Outplacement at the Aspen Country Day School, the premier pre-K through eighth grade independent school in Aspen, Colorado. Alex holds a Juris Doctor from Vermont Law School and a Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Science Political Science from Barnard College, Columbia. Prior to co-founding Karn Educational Consulting, Alex was the Director of Admissions at the Frederick Gunn School, formerly the Gunnery, a traditional New England boarding school in Washington, Connecticut, where she worked for 10 years. During her tenure, she guided families through all aspects of the admissions process and interviewed close to a thousand students. Michael, Alex, welcome to the show. Could you each share a little bit about your career histories and how you got into boarding school consulting? Specifically, kind of interested in what drew you to that field specifically. Sure. Thanks. We're so psyched to be here. So, after having worked at a boarding school for the past 10 years, I felt a kind of itch to try something new. I had been a lawyer for 10 years and then moved into boarding school. And I thought, okay, I've done my 10 years of boarding school. What's next? And I still loved the field of education and felt very passionately that I had a lot to offer families that were looking to put their kids into what I consider to be the best high school education system there is. And so it was kind of a natural thing to transition into consulting. And then the huge epiphany and deal sweetener was when Mike and I decided to do this together, because I think our two paths, and I'll let him talk about his path, combined to just be a pretty unique consulting value proposition. Cool. All right. Mike, tell me a little bit about how you got into boarding school consulting. Sure. So Taft was actually my second boarding school job. My first one was at Northwood School up in Lake Placid, New York. And those are two very different educational experiences for students and teachers. But that gave me sort of this interesting perspective of the different types of schools, different types of students, and the different ways that schools can serve students. And so when I got out to Aspen, where I am now, the head of school, Josh Woolman, gave me an opportunity to guide our eighth graders through the admissions process. And even though my main part of the job was teaching history, the part of the job I really fell in love with was the outplacement. So my second year, I became the director of outplacement, really took ownership of that whole process and got to really see the kids blossom through it. Outplacement, you mean like where they go following school there? Exactly. So seeing them go off to schools that they really enjoyed and taking my advice was was great. And so COVID, I think, as with a lot of people, caused me to kind of 
question career path and didn't really have the confidence to take the plunge out of teaching, which was the only career I'd ever had. But Alex called me and, and really gave me that boost of confidence to say, you know what, we, we can actually make this pivot and still help kids and just look at education from a different perspective. So really glad she called me and it's been great so far. Tell me a little bit about what makes Karn Consulting unique. You know, I did read on your website that the process is a journey of self-discovery. Could you maybe explain kind of like what Karn's philosophy is and their distinction? Sure. I could talk a little bit about the self-discovery portion. You think about your high school experience or anyone who's listening can think about their own. It's really the crucible where your identity gets formed, for better or worse. And so you think about where you want to be, what you want to be doing, and most importantly, like who you want to be surrounded by during those four years. Because that's when kids become who they are going to be as adults. And so science tells us that identity is formed when you're around 13 years old. And so those are the kids we're working with. They are really trying to figure out who they are, where they belong, and where they're going to find a place that they can blossom. I use this metaphor with kids of you think about like a sort of knobby piece of wood. And it's not a perfect metaphor, but there are places where those kids who have the really rough edges are going to help sand them down and give them a nice, acceptable shape. And there are other places that are going to let those knobs kind of grow out and become more gnarly. And that might be the perfect place for another kid. So depending on who that student is and who they want to be and what they need, that's where it's been so great for us to help them understand what their genuine passions are. It's not about marketing or packaging a kid. It's really about helping them figure out who they are in this moment and where they could be for the next four years, it's going to make them the best version of themselves. I like that metaphor. That's great. How much gnarliness they want on their life. Alexandra, could you maybe speak to what you think makes Karn unique? Yeah. Well, the first step in self-discovery is teaching students and family a new vocabulary word of Cairn Educational Consulting, which is the name of the company. That's how you pronounce it. And we picked a very obscure word, but it's the rocks, you know, on a trail that lead to the top. And so the first step is learning a new vocabulary word. And I think that really the principle that guides everything Mike and I do is fit. And it's so obvious to those of us that are in education. And it surprises me every day how much the notion of finding the right fit school for your child or a student, and I'm sure even at the college level, there's so much noise in the world about reputation or the outcome. And you have to go to this school to get to that college, to get to that job. And and really so much is lost in all of that, which is why don't we focus on finding the best fit school where you will thrive either as a high school student or a college student. And what does that mean? What's the right academic environment for you? Is it a super competitive, rigorous environment where you are the type of kid that feels motivated when you're competing against your classmates? Or is it a place that's much more nurturing and cooperative in in its approach? Is it a school that has, you know, a particular emphasis on a particular sports or type of robotics program or things like that. And once you start talking with families and students about this concept, 
you know, quickly, sometimes not so quickly, but most of the time, these notions of rank or selectivity disappear because families and students start to understand, ah, you know, so what if I get into that name school and it's the wrong fit for me, I'm not going to thrive there versus if I find the best place for me. And so I think that that concept of fit is something that Mike and I follow very closely and, and base everything we do around. And that's a kind of cool, unique guiding principle for us. Does it become fairly obvious at some point where a kid belongs? And if so, why is it obvious to you? Is it just because you've seen all of those boarding schools so much and you've seen the kids that have done well there? Or what exactly makes it obvious to you? Well, I'm smiling because Mike and I, I think, you know, we've only been working together in this capacity for six months. We've known each other and worked professionally when he was a placement director at his school in Aspen and I was the admissions director at my school here in Connecticut. But, you know, I think we both chuckle over how quickly we, in talking and getting to know a student, are like, yeah, that kid should be looking at this, 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 and this school. Because, yes, we have such a specific understanding of the the different programs that the different schools offer there. And beyond just the academic and athletic and arts programs, we know from having visited the schools and worked with folks at those schools, we know the kind of culture and the soul of the school. And so we are pretty nimble at talking to a student and recognizing schools that they would be really good fits for. To piggyback on what Alex said There are two different types of knowledge that become really important in this work. The first is what she just talked about, which was the knowledge of the schools and understanding what differentiates a place like Taft from a place like Hotchkiss. You know, you're really splitting hairs between two rival schools, but there are significant differences to the development of a 14-year-old kid, culturally, academically. And so understanding that is really important. At the same time, The more important knowledge, I think, is the knowledge of of really how to read a kid and learn about them in in a few hours of Zooms, potentially, or a couple of lunch meetings. And we could talk about the process of how that works in a minute. But I think what, what differentiates Alex and us from, you know, there are no competitors in our field whatsoever, but even other people that we communicate with is that we were those boots on the ground for a decade each. Alex ran an admissions office and met thousands of kids and saw how they fit at her school. I was a teacher in the classroom for 10 years. And so knowing what really makes a kid tick and being able to pick up on that is something we've had to hone over the last decade, but it's been super helpful. And, you know, a parent says, where do you think our kid really belongs? And we say this school and this school, they go off and tour and they come back like, we loved it. And that's such a great feeling. That really comes from from knowing them first and foremost. It must be quite a challenge because really we're talking about 13, 14 year old kids, right? And who maybe don't really even have a sense of who they are yet at all. Does that sort of add to that level of challenge that you're dealing with such young kids? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think as good as we are at coming up with a list, it is so fun when they've toured the schools, we regroup with the parents and the student to hear what their reaction and response was to the tours and interviews. And, you know, obviously there are going to be schools that rise to the top and some that 
fall away, but it is so fun and funny and interesting to hear what kids respond to. And, you know, a lot of times we're talking with parents and they're like, oh, you know, we have this, this, and this that's important to us, but really, you know, it's going to be Johnny's decision. So we try to weave into our work with parents. Look, you have a 13-year-old child. Their prefrontal cortex is not mature yet. Yours is. And by the way, you're paying the bill, but you get to have some say in this. And by the way, you should, because little Johnny might have liked, you know, that school because he saw a Coke machine in the common room, you know, not because they have this really cool winter program. It's always incredible what kids come back with. And the Coke machine anecdote is just the tip of the iceberg for what will help a kid differentiate. And on one hand, you want to say like, no, and I'm shaking my hands on a podcast, so I'm wringing their neck. Nobody can see that. But we had kids come back who like, you know, the the tour guide might have just failed their math test, right? And now they're going off to lead a tour and they're in a bad mood because they're 15. (laughs) And our student will come back to like, no, I really didn't connect with the tour guide. It's like, okay, but there's a lot more. You might never see that kid again. But at the same time, there is this sort of ineffable sense of home that some kids feel. And they just can't explain it. They're like, no, I, I just felt like those were my people. And so trying to both challenge the kind of poorly guided opinions while also honoring that kind of experience and feeling that they can't necessarily explain at 13, but they want to go to a place they feel like home. So that that's the challenge for us is to really get to the bottom of what's motivating their decision process. One thing that stuck out to me about the first segment of our conversation was that theme of the age of the kid determining a lot of the process. It can be pretty confusing and difficult to sort through all of the issues. If we all think back to when we were 13, imagine making sort of a very difficult life decision at that age. On the other hand, it is kind of important for them to sort of play a role in making that decision. But I think even just in my opinion, it's best for them to have a sense of ownership over their own lives this obedience and mindless, automatic, follow one's parents approach, I think is dangerous. It doesn't represent at least the values that I've been taught in terms of free thinking and autonomy and all of the things that I sort of value. I think there needs to be a balance really between the role of the parents in making that decision and the role of the child. Another thing that stuck out to me in that conversation was the anecdote about the kid with the Coke machine. So he saw the Coke machine and he decided this is a fantastic school because it has a Coke machine in the lobby, which they brought that up to suggest that while it it shouldn't necessarily be 100% the kid's decision, on the other hand, who's to say that the Coke machine's existence wasn't sort of the cairn, to use their term, to in determining which school they were going to go to. Could you explain the landscape of boarding school admissions? 
What are kind of some shifts that have happened in the past year or two based on the pandemic? The pandemic definitely shifted the way schools were having to execute their admissions programs. That has changed a little bit this year. Campuses are more open than they were. However, you could still go to some campuses even now and not be able to go into any buildings. But I think that the pandemic caused an uptick in interest in boarding schools for a variety of reasons. I think the most obvious immediate one was the perception that boarding schools were going to be able to offer a more normal program than day schools, you know, whether they insulated themselves or what have you, just the the sense that they were going to have a more robust ability to offer education and sports and arts and all that. And that has continued this year. We're hearing from particularly some of the more selective schools that their initial metrics for inquiries and interviews and so forth are significantly higher than even last year. And so I think that's going to make for a pretty competitive enrollment cycle this year. Can I just pause here for a sec? These schools are being perceived to have more robust academic programs. Do you find that to be true? I think that... Throughout the pandemic, boarding schools have been able to be surprisingly nimble in their ability. I mean, schools in 2020, March of 2020, essentially over spring breaks had to reimagine their curriculums to be able to move into a remote mode. And they did it. And I think that the sluggishness that certainly public school systems are hampered with, not for the fault of the teachers or anybody that works there, just because these are, you know, big bureaucracies, that did mean that independent schools had a better chance at adjusting. And then certainly last year, while there were some differences in the normal operations at boarding schools, the year was pretty full and complete and, you know, maybe masks, but they were able to offer all the programming that they normally do. I think there are also two things that boarding schools, a lot of them really have going for them that aside from the kind of lack of bureaucracy, the resources are one thing. You know, these schools have endowments in some cases reaching into the billions of dollars. And so to provide things like masks and safer activities and hand sanitizers at every corner is a drop in the bucket. So that helps. Secondly, it's the physical location of some of these places is an incredible advantage. So families realize that they could send their kids into what we as teachers and students always knew as like the bubble. And when you think about a place like Berkshire or Hotchkiss or Millbrook, these places that are rural, beautiful locations, But rural, they're not right next to a whole bunch of people coming in from everywhere else where kids could potentially get infected. So in COVID times, it became such an advantage to be able to pull a kid from a town or a city and say, you're going to go to a place where you're going to test, you're going to quarantine. And then after that, your experience is going to be pretty normal because they're able to control the inflow of people. So that's been a huge advantage. But to talk more about what boarding schools are actually able to do in this day and age. I've been a history teacher for a decade. It is not a great time to be a history teacher in this country, more so than ever, you know, since the Scopes monkey trial with science teachers kind of put them under a spotlight. That's where history teachers are because the politics, the issue of critical race theory 
Alex is from Virginia, so maybe she could jump in a little more on that. But not to get political, but it's just challenging. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, no one is happy. But at a boarding school, there is a level of trust of the faculty and more importantly, distance from family. That's huge. Families are not looking over their student's shoulder every night saying, what are you reading? They're not on the phone every afternoon picking them up from school saying, oh, what'd you learn in history today? Oh, well, we learned about slavery. And then it's a conversation and then it's an email and then it's a controversy. And that's unfortunately the the status quo in day schools and public schools around the country. Whereas boarding schools, there's just that layer of distance that really insulates the teacher and student relationship to really get, I think, the, the best opportunity for people, particularly in the humanities, to do their best teaching. How has the shift impacted boarding school? I mean, you actually kind of talked about that earlier. There's a little more about the, the landscape. I think, you know, one thing schools have tried to do for decades, at least presenting as trying to do it, is increase access for all students, you know, from all economic, racial, cultural, geographic backgrounds. They want more applications. They want more access. And I think the pandemic has has really forced them to speed that process up. So it's actually incredible what you can learn from a school's website now. And, you know, I remember Taft going through the process of rebuilding a beautiful eye-catching website. But now schools have gone to great lengths to really tell you about the school offerings, the culture, the programs, having an opportunity to meet students via videos. You can interview completely over Skype or Zoom now. So you think about a family of limited financial means from across the country, trying to look at a few schools in Connecticut, they never have to go to be able to make that decision. And so that equity of access has really increased given that travel is no longer a requirement to go through the admission process. And I think that's that's been a huge positive result. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, resulted in like more applications or? More applications from a more diverse group of students. So I think those are, those are both wins for these schools. Turn the page a little bit here, but what do you think the best strategy is for parents to take with, you know, boarding school applications today? Has that, has that shifted at all with the pandemic just strategically? The students who are ultimately most successful in this process are the ones who are given the freedom to pursue that right fit Alex talked about. I think the the goal for us is authenticity. So it's not about, like I said before, it's not about packaging a kid in the best way so that they get into the best school, again, in air quotes, possible, like to whatever. You go on niche.com and it tells you what the top five schools are. Our goal is not to get a kid into one of those five schools. Our goal is to help that student truly understand what their strengths and weaknesses are and what context is going to help them be best prepared for whatever comes next. So so the, the best two words I can give to parents going into this process is forget prestige and focus on fit, which is more than two words, but the first two were two words. <laughs> right, right, right. That makes sense. Absolutely. Building on that, Alex, I think back to something you said, you, you would hope that at the end of all that, they'd be in a, in a school that was the right fit, but also when they were proud of. I mean, I think that our job is to help families understand that prestige, all that is, is a selectivity kind of thing. You know, 
how many degrees harder to get your child into that school. The fact of the matter is that a school that isn't in the the Big Ten or Exeter or Andover could offer just as an amazing of a college preparatory experience with the doors open for a similar range of colleges and universities and helping families understand and that just because you could move heaven and earth and get your child into, you know, a Lawrenceville, but that's no guarantee that they're going to go on to Princeton. In fact, you know, there's a, an easy argument to make that if your child is a better fit at a different school, they might have a better chance of getting into a more prestigious college or university if they've been able to thrive to a greater degree at a less selective boarding school. And it's not easy, you know, because like I said, all this noise that's out there, but I think Mike and I do a really good job. And I think families come to understand that concept. And then once they go and visit the schools, they're like, oh my God, they get it. You know, they see that this little school that they'd never heard of in New Hampshire is just this amazing place with awesome programs and they could see their kid there. Yeah, we've been really lucky that our parents not only trust us, but also have come to us without those sort of, and maybe it's Colorado and the culture out here largely, but most of our parents have come without those preconceived notions of, oh, I I need to be able to tell my friends at the cocktail party that my, my kid is at school X. You know, we have had parents ask which school is harder than another school. And that's a challenge to quantify because there are different ways to make your way through every curriculum. If you go to a, a less selective school, but take all AP classes, it's going to be more challenging on a day-to-day basis than if you go to a highly selective school where you place into the middle of their curriculum. Similarly, if you're getting the support you need, then a school becomes far more doable than if you're in a place where you don't. So. There are all kinds of, of ways to look across the different schools, but once parents kind of put aside those expectations of what the, the sticker on the back of the car is going to say, it becomes a much better process. One thing that stuck out to me in this second section was this exploration of the connection of a boarding school to its surrounding neighborhood insulated from the outside world and from dangers i mean in this case in the the pandemic disease to some degree but also maybe attitudes that are a bit corrosive on the other hand these boarding schools are also products perhaps ideologically of the surrounding areas so they mentioned the case of well if you're at a boarding school in a liberal area, like in Connecticut, for instance, the attitudes there are going to tend towards those liberal attitudes. Another thing that stuck out to me in that second section was this notion of the open-mindedness of a boarding school community. When you do have that bubble atmosphere, there is a tendency towards a unified way of thinking. There's a reason why they seek a sort of more diverse student body because you can very easily sort of slip into homogenous ways of thinking. So it's very important to continue to get those outside perspectives to avoid that. And in my opinion too, teaching faculty tend to be more liberal. 
So when you are evaluating these schools, I think it's important to test the waters as far as how open-minded are these teaching faculty? How directive are they going to be? And well, you need to think this way because ultimately that's going to direct the way that the child sees the world. Where do you think boarding school applications are heading next year in five years? I have a nine-year-old daughter, so you know, just kind of curious what that might look like for her. Yeah. So I think, you know, short term, I project that's going to be competitive this year. That might not trickle down to all the boarding schools, but certainly at the the most competitive schools, I, I project that it'll be a competitive application year that could bleed into year after next or, or so on. I think that with the pandemic ongoing, with the economic uncertainties in terms of, is this a supply chain issue? Is this really, you know, a lot of people are saying this is the end of the consumer economy as we know it. You know, if we have a real major economic downturn, just like happened in 2008-9, you know, all bets are off in terms of boarding schools, application pools. But if that manages to not collapse, I think that People are really recognizing throughout this pandemic period what the benefits of boarding schools are. And and boarding schools spent a lot of money through this association to advertise about boarding schools and schools contributed. And it was a complete failure to generate any more interest in boarding schools than it already existed. The pandemic, on the other hand, has really elevated boarding schools in an interesting way. And so back to what I said at the beginning, that I happen to believe that boarding schools are the best educational opportunity for kids in that age range. The more families that start to understand that, you know, it's it's a exponentially growing thing. If 10% more families understood it this year and they talked to their friends and so on, I, I could see it being something that this growth of interest continues. Yeah, I think I think social media has played a pretty significant role in increasing that interest as well. I mean, a lot of the kids that I've taught were following schools on Instagram and seeing kids that they knew from their town on TikTok. And suddenly that idea that boarding schools are for, you know, either the billionaires or the deranged or both is really evaporating. And they're seeing them as just places that you can have fun and be yourself and and grow. And that's been great to see and totally organic outside of the admissions office's hands. The other thing I was going to add is one of the huge, huge, huge things that colleges talk about is how students are arriving with the academic information, but not the social, emotional, self-awareness, self-advocacy skills to navigate college and university. More and more families are understanding that their child is not ready to, to launch and, you know, there's a combination of more helicopter parenting style and a whole variety of things. But the pandemic has certainly amplified the social emotional unreadiness of students. And it just so happens that boarding schools do the educating and the social emotional independence building skill set very well. And you know, I, th- I think... Long term, as those applications potentially continue to go up, the schools are continuing to get better at assessing students on the entirety of their personality and their character. 
So as the applications last year went in without SSATs, schools are now seeing that the classes they built are still succeeding at the school, even without testing. And so I think it's going to be really hard for them to sort of put the toothpaste back in the tube and say, everybody needs to go test. There's a professor at Harvard named Rick Weisbord, and he's been banging the drum for years about getting rid of testing to be replaced with a more holistic understanding of a student's character and a real resume built upon not like what classes they've taken or what their standardized scores are, but who they are as a person morally and what challenges they've faced, how they've overcome them, and how they'll continue to grow and be a positive impact on campus. Now that's college. And obviously at 18, you've got more experience to talk about. But I think schools are going to really start to lean more into things like recommendations and interviews than they have in the past. And that's going to give them a much better sense of who these kids are rather than what they're really good at. Here are my final reflections after my conversation with Michael and Alex. Number one, a theme I think that's come up a lot with many of the educational consultants that I've talked to, both college and in this case, high school, is this concept that the status of a place should be ignored because that sort of mars the whole process and really arrests how well this sort of student goes through that and ultimately finds a home. I think that's true to some degree. However, I would point out that educational consultants that I talk to, they've heard a lot of parents and students who are sort of prestige driven, who are praised for the elite of the elite, beating that drum over and over and over again. So, I mean, I think to some degree, they're sort of disenchanted with that. So prestige does matter. Let's not lose track of that. You know, you can certainly get carried away. However, your degree matters. If you are putting Princeton on a resume instead of Manchester Community College, that does matter at the end of the day. They talked about it too, in terms of, well, a lesser boarding school can still get you to a very competitive college. That's true as well, I'd say absolutely. And you do want a place that matches your personality. But I think at the end of the day, you really want a balance of those two things. You do want an impressive place to put on your resume. Part of it is getting a great piece of paper because you want advantages in this world. Let's not forget that. But you also want, of course, a place that's going to fit you and that it's going to make you happy and is going to be able to nurture your interests and develop your personality. That's important. Another thing that I found interesting was the impact of social media in normalizing boarding school. Boarding school is seen for total elites or people who need remediation or, you know, have psychological struggles. Perhaps this is true that social media has normalized boarding school as a place for normal kids, right? For average kids, for the B pluses of the world. I think it's also a factor of what's happening to our public education system, which to be honest is a bit of a travesty. And it starts with the way that teachers have been treated in public school settings. It's kind of the last straw to force them to come and work in unsafe working conditions after what they have to endure to begin with in terms of like terrible salaries, the pressure that's put on them by administration, faculty, bureaucracy, parents, kids. It's an incredibly difficult job. They work very hard. They're not paid very much. So there's been this mass exodus particularly in the public schools. 
and it has not had a net positive effect on the quality of education in public schools. There's also been an exodus of kids from intelligent families, from sophisticated backgrounds to private school. Nothing's more important than your peers in school. That's the greatest influence on any kid's life. What their friends are, what their friends value, what they talk about, the mistakes they make, the errors that they make. Those are all of great impact. Another point that we got to sort of at the end of our conversation was about how applications are headed towards a direction of evaluating the personality of a student versus the metrics of their scores. That's a valid criticism of the standardized testing model. However, if you don't have standardized testing, to me, you lose standards for these institutions. These are the people that are going to be in charge of our society, are going to be making decisions that are extremely critical in the years that come, you know, in terms of politics, in terms of the environment, in terms of the resources, the direction of our culture, of our society. I mean, it's existential in a lot of cases. So what's at stake is huge. So how are we going to compare two qualitative sort of evaluations of people and say, well, one story is better than the next. It's just not possible. And the rest of the world recognizes that because international applications are all based on test scores. That is the test of what's to come too. Those are the circumstances that our leaders will face. They will be timed, they will be stressed, they will be under pressure. So I feel pretty passionately that some sort of standard measure needs to be in place. Now that's not to say that we throw out those narratives that make up a person as well. Their essay that in some cases they've written themselves. The recommendations from the teachers, right, who have experience with that student in particular, and the story told by their transcripts, if they've interviewed with the school, all of those other sort of components to an application. I think those are important too, but if you're abandoning standard measures of quality, you lost me there. I think you're really facing mediocrity as a society.